You're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm talking with David Petrie, Head of the Corporate Finance Faculty at the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, and John Gilligan, Director at the Oxford Said Business School and co-author, alongside the late Mike Wright, of Private Equity Demystified, the seminal textbook on private equity that's now in its fourth edition. It's a highly influential document read by policymakers across the world, top business schools across the US, Europe and Asia, and devised in collaboration with practitioners from across the industry. We talk about why the book was needed, why it's so widely read now, and then get on to some even bigger mysteries like what does private equity look like post-pandemic? Does private equity outperformance make sense? And what's the secret of great m and Enjoy. David, John, welcome to Fun Shack. I was wondering if we could begin by John giving us a little bit of an overview as to the, the provenance of private equity demystified, which is now in its fourth edition. Um, and then we can get on to the process of demystification and talking about private equity in this brave new world that we're in. So I believe that the first edition of private equity demystified was in about 2008, which was just the very dawn of a very different kind of crisis. (laughs) John, take us through it. Yeah, Ross. I mean, the background to this was a conversation over lunch. All good things happen over lunch. I was having lunch with Chris Ward, who was then the chairman of the Institute um, of of Corporate Finance Institute at the ICAW. And at the time, there was an investigation going on at the Treasury Select Committee into the private equity industry. And I was on gardening leave between leaving Deloitte and joining BDO. So I was one of the few people who was actually watching this live on telly because I was at home. Everybody else is obviously at work. So I said to Chris, have you seen the Treasury Select Committee investigation? Because it's a little bit odd because the questions are very simplistic and the answers, therefore, don't make the industry look very, uh, show the industry in the best light. Shouldn't somebody maybe write a note to somebody to just suggest how it basically works in principle so they could move on to the more interesting substance? And what Chris said to me was, well, you're not doing anything. Why don't you do it? So I then phoned Mike Wright and Mike was my PhD supervisor at the time and said to Mike, well, you're the leading academic in this field. Could you summarize all the academic stuff? And I had a sort of hidden agenda. I thought I'd get a free literature review for my PhD, but Mike saw through that one. Um, so what happened was we did this, and before we knew it, we went back to the ICIW with Chris and said, well, we seem to have sort of written a bit of a book because it got longer. And it just coincided with the ICIW starting to think about thought leadership and these sorts of things. And so I said, well, why don't we just do it as a thought leadership piece? And then the great good fortune of life, we published it with a lot of help from people in ICIW, a huge amount of help from people in ICIW actually. Um, and then Harvard Business School put it on their reading list. And you thought, oh, that's handy. So that's, that's the background to it. And then once we were off, um, the global financial crisis came along. We needed to rewrite because the world had changed dramatically. Uh, and we rewrote about every couple of years, David, haven't we done it? So a very kind of organic um, needs led process. David, why did you think that it was a project that was worth really kind of getting behind and supporting? Well, as John said, it 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 had a, a very definite need at the time, and you know the the BVCA does does excellent work in this area, and um, it's not to say that uh, that that you know they they don't constantly advocate uh, the the sector, but um, we we felt that there was a little bit of a uh, a gap, perhaps in the perception of politicians and policymakers, really. Um, you know, there is there is this idea that if a particular professional body or a 
a trade association comes to politicians and says, you know, well, you should be doing this because it's in the national interest. They tend to say, well, in the well, in the words of Mandy Rice Davis, you know, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Um, there is always this this difficulty that they would tend to see them coming and say, well, of course, you're paid to represent the you are, um, as it used to say, the voice of private equity and venture capital. Um, whereas the Institute of Chartered Accountants does, as part of its um, royal charter, uh, include um, the provision to act not only in the interests of the profession, but also in the wider public interest. And so the analysis that John and Mike uh, did has kept things up to date, really, with what's been going on. Private equity industry certain, certainly hasn't stood still. But as John has also said, it has become a really very comprehensive text and it's useful for members of the corporate finance faculty and more broadly people hoping to enter the private equity sector, as well as principals and investors in it, I think, these days because it is such a comprehensive piece of work. Uh, you know, I think they probably started off attempting to write a relatively short book and found that actually what it is a, an extremely complicated and nuanced sector actually, and to understand it properly, it isn't possible simply to set it out briefly. There are levels of complexity that I think that even people working in the sector may not fully appreciate. And the fact that it, it cites over 200 academic references means that when we're having discussions with policymakers in Whitehall and Westminster about the importance of private equity and its contribution to the economy and so on, you know, the evidence is irrefutable. Uh, it is grounded in very solid research. This is not simply the view of a trade body. This is really solid stuff, but it also works very well for practitioners, for our you know, younger chartered accountants who are wanting to make their fortune in private equity. This is a really good place to start in terms of how, what are the nuts and bolts of the business? So this is why business schools love it. And I'm sure John will be able to talk about this a lot more because you know, it really genuinely is on the reading list of business schools from Harvard to Hong Kong. So it works at all sorts of different levels. Um, it, but it busts myths on the sector and explains that it does add to economic value. And it also is candid about some of the criticisms leveled against it, but it also provides a very useful how-to guide. And that's what we like. So, um, you know, we, we, we are delighted to support it and to continue to do so because it works for us at, at, at so many different levels. Yeah, I think that's a really great summary. That is really the impression that I got reading it as well, David. Uh, just to look at the political side, I mean, it's, it's not an apolitical book, but it is incredibly balanced. And I think there's a lot of academic work out there even that's highly critical of private equity. And I think where, where things are known, the facts are put forward and when they're, where they're not known, I actually think you've got a section, John, saying, you know, look, look at the evidence base. And yeah. often it's not there for private equity. I mean, one of the things we set out to do was not to be an advocate for any particular point of view, but to allow people to get to the point where they can ask the question and decide for themselves. So the whole idea of gathering together the evidence was we only use evidence that is rigorously academic. So we don't, for example, use pretty much any 
evidence produced by people who have an axe to grind one way or the other. So we wouldn't use evidence from uh, a trade body without uh, commenting on it. So it's, it's all, of the, all of the references cited are peer reviewed. So the first point is we've done the exercise to get the data in one place. If you look in the appendix, in appendix six, I think it is, it's all there. It's summarized in one paragraph, so you don't have to read the paper either, but the re paper reference is there if you want to read the paper. So if you want to dive into there, you can go there if you want. And the idea is to say, well, this is what we know, but here's, here's what we don't know. And here's the stuff where people have strong opinions, where the opinions are based upon evidence that's, I mean, the evidence has been growing, but evidence is incomplete. Because one of the problems, I mean, it says it on the tin, private, you know, it, it, I don't think private is private equity is deliberately secretive. I never, I've never believed that. I think the private equity didn't really care about communicating outside of its, its, its closed circle for a long time because they never really thought about it. Mm. So when we started, we made the point that private just means not quoted. It doesn't mean secret. Um, it's become, there's become a public interest in it because it's now so big and that's legitimate. But back in the day, people said it's secretive. It wasn't secretive. They just hadn't really thought about communicating with people who didn't, to that point, have any interest. So we've, had, we've been through this process of unpeeling the onion where data has become available, people have become more interested. And a lot of the early academic research turned out to be wrong because the data was wrong. Um, so a lot of it's been rewritten. Some of it good, some of it bad. Yeah, I certainly didn't get the feel that I'd be, I was being preached to. And to David's point that it can appeal to many different con uh, constituencies, it really does feel like a manual. I feel like if you gave me 100 million quid, I could at least go through the motions of managing a private equity fund. And every time I get stuck, I could just pick it up. <laughs> now, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of skill that goes into it, but you certainly kind of hit all the points in terms of, you know, from start to finish. The thing that, that, that we learned as we were writing was we started by, it was, we were the first people to sort of sit down and try and write something that wasn't either aimed at the management of the company doing a buyout, or the investor in a, in a fund, but we're trying to just say, look, here's the big picture and here's how it works. So it was more curiosity than, than anything else. Mm. And what became clear as we did each edition was, this is an industry that is very intricate. It's not complicated, but it's very, very intricate. And if you don't understand the intricacies, you can't draw the right conclusions. So the classic one is, is taxation of carried interest. Uh, taxation of carried interest, top of the agenda at the moment. Most people don't understand a really important point about the taxation of carried interest that's arcane and weird. In the legislation in the UK, the definition of carried interest in the, in the, the tax legislation is that amount of capital that is taxed as carried, uh, uh, that amount of, of return that's taxed as capital. In an LP agreement, carried interest is 20% of the return. They're two different things because the return has interest, fees and capital. So in the tax legislation, it's defined as capital. In the LP agreement, it's 20% of all the profit. If you do the arithmetic and look at how much return comes from interest, fees, and capital, you'll find it's, yeah, various from fund to fund, obviously, but a lot of return comes from interest and fees. That's taxed as income. So a large proportion of carried interest is taxed as income already. But unless you know that the definition in the tax legislation is different to the definition in the LP agreement, you'd never know that. And you have no idea how much time I spend talking to journalists explaining that the thing that's written in the tax legislation is different to the thing that's written in the LP agreement and that it makes a difference what the tax rate is. And have any journalists picked up on it and written it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, to be fair to, to journalists, they're interested and, and now we've, we've 
you know, there was an article in the FT recently, and you know, that, that point has now been been made. But it's not, you know, try explaining that in a headline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, and it's not very exciting either, but it's important. Yeah, we certainly find it very useful when we're talking to officials in the Treasury and so on about fiscal policy and how that relates to government investment programs and the development of new funds and so on, which is what we've been quite busy attempting to assist with in the faculty over the certainly over the past nine to 12 months, as the government has looked at other measures which might um, increase the flow of funding into those bits of the economy that are short of cash. And, um, you know, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, in a crisis, all ideas are considered, however, however left field. And so sometimes it's been quite helpful to us to be able to explain to people just how some of these things work. But in a context of an open meeting, you can't necessarily do that. It's actually quite handy to say, I tell you what, I've got something that I'd suggest you have a look at that just, you know, you can't really say to people you need to start with the basics. But if you are looking to do that, this is this really is a very, very good place. So I do use that to help people gather a, a sort of a background understanding of how some of these things really do work. And it, and it, and it really is it really is very effective um, from, from that perspective. And also, I think one of the other things that is particularly important about this latest edition is that John um, covers in some detail, not just um, some of the changes over the past two or three years in terms of the way that private equity funds have been, um, well, doing just that, raising funds and structuring themselves and what this means for the broader economy in terms of systemic risk. Um, so there are some important factors there that the government officials and the Bank of England have been looking at, and we've had helped them use this edition to explain. But also more broader questions about, you know, how should public money be allocated to support businesses that might be struggling at the moment? And again, that is touched on in the addendum um, to the text, which um, which uh, which John uh, wrote with uh, with Jim Strang um, after the original t copy had gone to press. So there are a few, well, not a few. There were a lot of very important policy implications throughout the document, I think, or throughout the publication. But we've certainly found it been very useful to support our work uh, in determining policy, which then in turn leads to government intervention. So it's some, um, it, it's a useful underpin to um, actual fiscal policy uh, when it's working at its best. And I can say that there have been times when we have used it to, uh, to aid understanding and, uh, and, and, it, and it's proven very effective. Yeah, I thought the, the book was worth getting just for the uh, pendulum that you wrote, John, with, with Jim Strang, which is just a couple of pages, but I thought it was, you know, really interesting looking at how things, are, you know, because everything's changed now, mm -hmm. right? But my impression from those pages was actually that uh, I'd be relatively sanguine from the perspective of a private equity fund investor, but that uh, perhaps some other constituents might feel some heat. Yeah, the... So Jim and I wrote that in April, and it was the first thing, it was the first time we ever tried to write anything with people when we couldn't sit in a room together. So it was the first time we did anything over Zoom, which was a first weird thing. 
But the private equity industry has been through a number of cycles. I mean, depending on how old you are. I started in 1988, so I'm, I lost track of how many crises I've done. Um, this is obviously a, a longer and different one. But the industry has come through many of them. And each time it's gone in, there's been this, this fear that, that leveraging things will cause a problem. That's essentially at the heart of what the, what the issue is. People are concerned that over-leveraging things will amplify results that are bad, and that'll be bad. And we've argued for 13 years, whatever we've been writing, that because the funds haven't been leveraged, it doesn't, it, that's not the right, the right thing to be focused on. Now, there's, there's been change in the fund structure, which means that's creeping in. And we, we kind of said in 2007, that'll happen, and it is. Uh, but we don't think at the moment there's any evidence that that's going to cause any kind of systemic risk. But the thing that is different is the structure of the banking market, which is radically different. And that's, that's the overflow from the last crisis. You know, the GFC changed the rules of banking to make the economics of leverage finance different. There's more tier one capital in banks now than they used to be against leveraged debt. And that allowed the debt funds to come into the market. So many the debt funds in, in Europe essentially were the mezzanine funds who started moving down the capital structure. And then the, the US model came over, over here. Those funds are leveraged. And indeed, some of those funds leverage each other. And there's as yet, that's not yet been through the mill in Europe. It's been through the mill in the States. Um, and the concern is that some of the smaller funds, because these funds are actually relatively shorter, so a private equity fund's 10 years. So if you're going to have a crisis every, you know, every decade, you're going to probably hit one on average. Debt funds are shorter. So if you raised one in your first fund and you went into the crisis, you'll have no ability to, no track record to raise money for the next funds. So we have a quite uh, fragile environment for some of the new entrants into that market over the last decade. And when we come out of that, of this crisis, which we will and the world will be better, it'll be, it'll be interesting who survives and who doesn't. If you'd have pitched yourself as a retail um, unitrange provider or a travel sector specialist, you know, the world got bad and there's nothing you've done about it. It's, it's just, you know, it's a stochastic event. Conversely, if you're a turnaround uh, investor, maybe the world got more interesting. But the one thing we do know from each crisis is it's always been a good time for the equity investor. Writing checks when the world has been bad has been a, a good strategy over the years for the, for the GP. Interestingly, for the LP, the evidence is that you can't pick the time to invest because you don't make the investment decision, the, the GP does. So when you, if you make an LP decision today, well, your GP might not invest the money into three years, so you might miss this, this, with this window. Which some could say is uh, central to its uh, inherent advantage because you can't just flip flop and change your mind. You're, you're stuck in it through good and bad. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the reason it doesn't spread risk is because you, you, you made your bet and you bet on it. Now the secondary markets and the ability to do leverage positions changes that a bit and it's eating away at the edges of it. But it, the analogy that runs through my head is a bit like, um, you know, when people used to snip the edge off coins in the 17th century, you know, there comes a point when you've debased the coin. Uh, we're not there yet. But that's, that's, that's a sort of a similar analogy. We're just chipping away at the model a bit, bit by bit. And the original model of you and I set up something for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, if I've made some money, you pay me 20% of it. And if we haven't, you don't. That model's now evolving very rapidly. Yeah. And, and so the jury is out on the performance of debt funds. But do either of you have a gut feeling with regards to the impact of debt funds on mainstream private equity if we were to hit a situation where there was a lot of workouts and, and insolvencies and so on? I mean, that's organisationally, that's the interesting thing about the smaller funds is, is they don't have the internal organisation to do that. 
because they weren't they've been around long enough. And working things out is is a labour intensive exercise. So the, one of my one of my colleagues, I'm, a, I'm on the investment committee, a big issue investor, impact investor. One of my colleagues is a is a partner of the workout fund. And what they do is they buy other people's problems and solve them. So that, you know there are routes to, to solve these problems, um, but the original investor won't see the benefit of that. The, the new investor will. Um, so there is a, a question as to you know, are there enough people who know how to do this, and are they in the right place? Because they're originally in the banks. The banks had workout departments. Now maybe those people are all the people who are sitting in the in the, in the debt funds now, because many of them would have left. But you know, that's the question. I think I think the other couple of other interesting things to say about that question, Ross, as well. I mean, the, the first thing is that we've not really seen the level of insolvencies that we were anticipating, or indeed that many of us anticipated at the beginning of this, uh, back in back this time last year, really, or last March when uh, we went into the first lockdown. Um, you know, the statistics are very very clear. You know, the number of insolvencies is is, is less in Q4 of, um, of last year than it was in 2019. So um, that's, that's, the, that's the first uh, situation. I think many of these um, businesses are not, have, have, the, the, many of the difficulties for debt funds haven't yet hit. As John has mentioned, you know, those private equity houses that have found themselves with businesses where their working capital's got stretched to such a level that the that business is, is unsustainable, I suppose, and there's no other sources of capital, then they've they've taken some fairly urgent action or some, some desperate action in some cases. So there have been some high profile private equity um, bat failures um, in the sort of within the sort of six month kind of horizon of the crisis biting. Um, but they could well, some of those could well have been businesses that were already um, struggling for a variety of different reasons. I think what is also interesting is what you've seen or what we've seen more broadly with the actions that private equity took, um, you know, over the past nine to 12 months. So the first thing that they did was look very carefully at their existing portfolio. Some businesses were doing well and others were clearly under a great deal of, of strain. So um, the things that uh, private equities consistently argued that it does well is bring professional management into businesses. So in, you know, ask, providing an external perspective and looking at ways in which the business could be adjusted, working capital management could be improved yet further. Diff unfortunately, difficult decisions could be taken in terms of reducing operating capacity and sadly reducing headcount and so on. The private equity funds took those, they, they moved very quickly with their existing portfolio businesses. But then they also found that they had a lot of investee companies that were pretty much business as usual. And alongside that, they also changed their investment philosophy. I mean, private equity for, for many years has recognize that it can change the significantly change the value of investee companies by building together similar companies, the so-called buy and build approach. They recognize that this was a very this was a, this was still a way you could do deals during lockdown. So uh, it, chances they can, you know you can de-risk an investment because chances are well you already know the sector by definition with buy and build because you've got an investee company in it there already so you've done your due diligence on the market 
and the dynamics of that. You're content about that. And there's a very good chance that the management team probably also know personally, you know, the other people within the target company. They, met, they certainly know the customer base, the dynamics of it, and so on. So um, the, the, the private equity houses are able to use their existing resources, their existing management teams, and so on, to help them due diligence, due diligence investment targets. So we saw that developing as a way for getting transactions done. And then we really did start to see, you know, um, uh, but processes kicking off as well where else is the value to be found so public to privates another area where um, you know last year there were more public to privates than they usually are and again this is because there is there's value to be had in the public markets and some companies that are a little bit unloved and I think that, that we'll see more of that um, from private equity next year. The great truth of private equity is the cost of capital drives a lot of things if debt's cheap then then transaction sizes rise and the, I recall giving a lecture 18 months or so ago um, with a colleague from Goldman Sachs. And he said, look, it's a bit like being in, in the, the final of the French Open, which still has, um, you still have to win by two clear games in the French Open, so you can keep playing to the end. So you know, it could be you know, 17 all, you know the end's on the way, but you've no idea whether it's going to be 19-17 you know, or 39-37. It felt like that before we came into the crisis because we were at the top of the market. And so when we submitted the book to the publishers, we actually said, you know, we, we submit this knowing we're at the top of the market. We had no idea a virus was going to be the thing that disrupted it. And I was completely surprised it was all, obviously. But it's still the case that we have this strange atmosphere across the capital markets where the cost of capital is distorted by quantitative easing. And you know, low interest rates means that the asset value inflates. And when that's unwound, the asset values will fall. We just don't know if that's going to unwind quickly or slowly or how that's going to happen because nobody's ever done it before. Mm. Um, and the change of government in the States brings Janet Yellen back to the table. And she was in the process of slowly unwinding that towards the end of the Obama era. And her mood music has changed because the world's changed. Um, but that's the, the kind of the, the big uh, unspoken elephant in the room is what happens if interest rates rise significantly? Because that well, this goes back to the evidence base, doesn't it? Because the majority of the growth in this industry, I mean, it was a cottage industry before quantitative easing almost. And now it's huge. Sustained my career for many years. Thank you for that. <laughs> so, yeah, nobody knows. And I guess the, the, the other thing, going back to David's point, is, yeah, there have been some sectors that have done phenomenally well, you know, software being the, the quintessential beneficiary of lockdowns. And then there are the sectors that I think David was alluding to where they've, they've had hit problems, but those that are backed by investors with deep pockets see it as a time to go hunting. And they may well emerge even stronger because they will dominate their sector, I guess, having yeah. rolled it all up. I mean, there, there is that. I mean, the, the buy and build thing is an interesting change. I mean, one of the questions that, that's perplexed me since I started doing this all those years ago is all the academic evidence we have suggests that M&A generally destroys value. And all the academic stuff we've got about private equity suggests that generally private equity at a gross level outperforms markets. Private equity is an M&A driven business. That's what we did. So how come the business that is focused on M&A and pretty much nothing else is outperforming the market when all M&A taken the round generally suggests that it's quite distorted. 
Uh, and this is the, the kind of question that we wrestle with for years and years and years. It, it's what we, you know, we, we call the paradox of private equity is people do M&A and they make larger gains, larger um, returns than if they didn't. How come? David, that's an incredibly controversial statement, I guess, from your perspective as uh, chief executive of the corporate finance faculty. Yes, we do. We, do. <coughs> we, we tend to take a slightly different view and a rather more <laughs> optimistic view to the value added by M&A than, um, than, than perhaps um, uh, John's in, indicated in the academic uh, evidence. We always used to be entertained by a report that used to be published by one of the major accounting firms suggesting that M&A destroyed value. And we thought, why the hell are these guys publishing this? But of course, what they were publishing this for was because they, they, they are, their argument ran, of course, well, smart M&A with good due diligence and so on and all of these things. But of course, nobody goes into a transaction expecting it to fail. Um, you know, so what, what has happened that has, may have resulted in, in reduction in value? And the answer is things haven't worked out the way you thought they would. Yeah, so why is that? And these, these can be systemic issues. They can be uh, uh, political, you know, it's all the usual, the usual analysis that John and his colleagues teach their students in business school. One of the areas in their pastel analysis has changed beyond their imagina original imagination. Um, if there's something fundamentally wrong with the target, then even some of the largest examples illustrate that it is possible typically to take legal action against the, uh, the sellers. Um, Americans are making, uh, it's very unfair to Americans, by the way, for any Americans watching, but in the, in the US, I should say, I should preface my remarks by saying that the use of warranty and indemnity insurance has become you know, much more widespread than it ever was 10 or 15 years ago. And also the propensity to claim against those policies, which is where, my, um, where I uh, dragged my Americans into it. Um, you know, the, there is evidence that suggests that American acquirers are more inclined to claim against WNI policies than perhaps is the, typically the case in Europe. Um, and that, again, I think is a function of the way that those um, transactions are done, again, um, on the basis of completion accounts, um, rather than the lockbox mechanism, which is, um, you know, uh, custom and practice in the UK. But it's not to say that these things, you know, won't, won't change. Um, and, uh, but I, I think, I think there are lots of, probably lots of factors actually, which might contribute to things not working in quite the way that, that people expect, but it's not something that we tend to like to talk about. And a few years ago, um, Vince Cable had a, had a good look at this and commissioned, um, a piece of, piece of research, um, looking at the value that, uh, M&A did actually add to the markets. And, uh, that particular research illustrated that the impact was was relatively neutral, but in the corporate finance faculty, we give a, an award every year to the public company that has added most to shareholder value through the use of M&A activity. And this year we did an analysis to look at past winners of these awards, because of course, as many people know, a lot of companies fear the curse of the award. As soon as you get given an award, values collapse and something goes horribly wrong. This is not the case, actually, in, in eight out of 10 of the businesses that we gave an award to. And given that they were all public companies, if you'd invested in the stock of each of those businesses, you'd have, you'd have generated a return that was significantly ahead of um, 
any average indice and most tracker funds because these businesses were making very judicious use of M&A and very effective use of M&A to add to shareholder value. I mean, the, 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 the academic bit, bit of me is twitching a bit there, David, but with selection bias. But the thing that, that Mike and I kind of... We tried to rule that out, but yes, go on. <laughs> it, not, not applied to the fund, though, of my, uh, my, my magic fund. Yeah. Um, so, so what, we, what me and Mike kind of picked away at over the decade was trying to answer this question, of how come this thing is happening? And we think, and the conclusion of the book, in a sense, is we think it's about process. We think it's the fact that private equity firms are good at doing this stuff because they do it in a fixed process. So there, unlike um, this idea that, that great deals get done over a napkin sitting in a bar over a bottle of wine between two entrepreneurs, those are the ones that probably go wrong. Because if you do a process and you have a process that you do every time, what you do is you select out the failures quite, quite efficiently. You, you know, there, are, there are waves that can swamp you like this tsunami of, of, of the virus. But if you selected out all the things that you could have selected out reasonably, then you avoid the losses. And when you avoid the losses, that makes a big difference to where you're going. And we think, but we haven't yet been able to demonstrate because we haven't figured it, we never quite figured out how to do it. In fact, I'm doing some work at the moment with a guy called Tim Galpin at Oxford on this, is that what is defining the success of private equity is two things. One is that on the way in, there's a process that not only buys well, but implements the, the purchase process post-completion well. So the 100-day plan thing. So due diligence turns into action. And secondly, the focus on exit makes people do it quickly. Because there's one thing to say, I'm going to change the strategy of this business over the next decade. And there's another saying, I'm going to have to do it in the next three, year, three to five years. And you just work quicker. And we think those two things are at the heart, or probably our conjecture is that those are at the heart of why this works. That, that sounds plausible to me, but could you not kind of zoom out a little bit further and say, well, the process is the function of the structure, the LP structure. It's not just the LP structure. Think about the difference. So if, imagine I sold a business to GE some years ago, and they're really good acquirers. They have an internal process, but it's all internal. So it's an internal process, and the level of knowledge in that process is limited by the number of transactions they do, which is a lot, or used to be a lot when they were you know, very acquisitive. Now imagine that you're, I don't know, pick a fund, doesn't matter. Most of those funds externalize the process. Private equity is a big user of the services provided by people like me and other people. You know. We did a lot more transactions than anybody else did. So we learned more. So the, you know, the big four accounting firms and, the, and GT and BDO below them do more transactions per year than any private equity fund in the world by orders of magnitude. So funnily enough, the people who have come across the problems tend to be in those firms. Now, some of them end up moving into private equity. So one of the conjectures is that by externalizing a large proportion of that process to people that you work with consistently, you get the benefits of their learnings and therefore you avoid the mistakes you would have made had you not used external advisors. Corporates use external advice less. And therefore, they're more likely to fall for their own beliefs, as it were. They don't have an external check mechanism in the same way. So we, we were conjecturing that, you know, you hear a lot about passion and vision, all these sorts of things in business schools and my colleagues talk about this, but maybe here competence is what we're talking about. You know, being very competent at a process might make a hell of a big difference. Hmm. Well, yeah, yeah I on, think David. I was just going to say that... Um, 
that's certainly um, the view expressed, of course, by very many of the members of the corporate finance faculty who are themselves advisors. And they do, as John says, they do, they do see the same things day in, day out. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, um, even some of the larger or mid-market houses, I guess, in the UK might do 10, 15, 20 deals a year. But they're certainly not seeing exactly the same thing in quite the same way. And the increasing specialism within the advisory firms as well, again, increases that level of expertise and that ability to be able to say, yeah, you know, this what this this could be, this could be, prove to be one of those unforeseen difficulties that I was talking about a little time ago. They're not really unforeseen. They're um, they're things, they're factors in investment risk that people just might look at differently and be and actually take perhaps an artificially optimistic view about at the time because it happens to fit with company strategy and i think that to to um sit alongside john's analysis or to perhaps to 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 add to it or to add factor no doubt they're considering is that i think in private equity they're set up to monitor changes and KPIs within a business extremely closely. And where things are going wrong, they will tend to know, potentially anyway, not, this is generalizing, but perhaps quicker than they might within a private company or a public company. Perhaps they will know sooner that something's going wrong. And, and also perhaps they will be um, more inclined to take action sooner you know one of the the, the facts and perhaps john I, I i'm worried that i don't now have academic evidence to support this but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence amongst the advisory community to suggest that um private equity um managers change management teams um and yeah, there's, there's, there's evidence of that all there's there is evidence that private equity changes management more than anybody else absolutely yeah yeah and and they're doing that in order you know to they are proactive managers they will step in and intervene and um there's not necessarily perhaps the giving an investment the benefit of the doubt if we could call it that that you might get in um uh you know a a, a public company transaction where it might be well we don't quite know why this isn't working how much of what we've bought is is now integrated within the much larger organization and therefore it's less easy to assess exactly how much of value that it's actually added to the to the to the whole whereas if you've got the thing running discreetly it's much easier to uh, to assess its performance so there's a whole series of different factors that, that are at work here an academic support and analysis of these things does allow board directors to challenge some of these these concepts these ideas that you know we know that we need to be careful with m a because you know we're concerned it doesn't necessarily add value and how can we change our processes to try and minimize risk taking it back to private equity demystified that's where you know some of the principals in private equity may not think about some of this stuff quite that way all the time but having a going back to the text and saying yeah actually that's an interesting trend we need to have a bit of a think about that 
it's really I was reading Simon Whitney's Simon Whitney's been on your, on your podcast hasn't he Ross he has and he's coming on, on again soon to talk about his new book on on governance which is the that that work that we had last night sorry I was reading that last night because Simon's, Simon's right. a colleague and a friend and there's a point that he makes in that book which uh, Simon's far more scholarly than I am and often a lot, lot smarter than I am um, but the point he makes is, is that if you stand back from this and look at the, the simple decisions you make as a shareholder, shareholders in public companies have the option to sell. So the private equity um, shareholder has to have the option to fire because they don't have the option to sell. And so the reason you change the management is because you don't have the option to bail out. And that's, that's the sort of the contract you, you enter into. You have this, this simple idea of if I don't like you, I'll sell. And that you know, that'll be reflected in the market will make the price of the asset fall because of that. You can't do that in the private equity world or couldn't historically if there's a bit of secondary trading, you can do it on now. So you have to have the option to fire because what else can you do? You know, there isn't yeah. a third option. And that's, that's again, one of these things that, as David was saying, you know, it, it changes the game. If you can't sell, you've got to do something else. Yeah, there's an interesting interplay between the advantages of the governance model and the advantages of, of the process that you outlined as well. And obviously they're interlinked, but they are separate as well. Yeah, I mean, the governance thing sort of comes from the process. So there's a process on the way in, which is a bit I know well, because you know I was an M&A person. And then there's a process once you're in, which is, which is kind of embedded in the, in the governance piece. And the thing that strikes you when you deal with a private equity fund year on year on year is how consistent that process is across the piece. I really like to try and bring you two together on the M&A point a bit, because I think it can be done listening to you both. And so let me try you on something, which is that the academics may have discovered that M&A may on average destroy value, but the average does not necessarily dictate the overall benefits of, of an activity. And David's prize is highlighting people that have uh, hit upon a successful formula and are accruing knowledge along the way and your description of private equity does the same thing and so while the average may destroy value the activity as a whole may be uh, accretive that's absolutely right Ross. i mean the, the whole one of the biggest problems that the conversation about private equity has generally is that averages are quoted all over the place so the average return on funds compared to the average return on a market is that a meaningful thing and the answer is well not really and it's not meaningful for a number of reasons one nobody buys the average um, when you put leverage into things, you make the dispersion of the distribution bigger because you amplify everything. Um, so the, you know, this constant question of does private equity outperform the market? Um, I sort of got to the point where I don't think the question makes any sense anymore because there's now leverage in funds. So I, as an investor in a fund, first of all, all investors don't get the same deal. If I put you know, 100 million pounds into a fund, I get a different deal than if I put 1 million pounds into the same fund. Secondly, there's leveraging funds that comes in and out. So depending upon when I'm in that fund, if I'm trading in the secondary market, my returns will be different to yours if you stayed in across the whole piece. So even within one fund, the LPs are getting different returns. So what does the average mean? No idea. Um, and then there's this, this, this whole question of what is it, what's the average of what? You know, if you're doing turnaround investments in France and I'm doing buy and builds in Spain, are we doing anything similar? I don't know. We might organizationally look very similar when we draw an organization chart and we might all be in my book and you know we might put them down as a private equity fund but is it really sensible to compare us because the strategy is really 
the question, you know, the question, real question as an investor is, what do you say you're going to do? Did you do it? And given the risks I took, did I get a return for it? And comparing, I don't know, everybody always picks on KKR, so let's pick on Apollo, I don't know, some large buyout fund, CBC, Advent doesn't really matter, to um, LDC or inflection or I don't know, somebody else. Is that a sensible thing to do? You know, it's a bit like comparing um, a performance of somebody in Chelsea Football Club to somebody in Harlequins Rugby Club. They're both playing a sport with a ball on a field, but they're not trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you come across the uh, American intelligence uh, definition, the difference between a puzzle and a mystery, which I'll probably mangle, but um, puzzles, basically, they have an answer, at least in theory. They can be solved computationally. Mm -hmm. And mysteries don't have a single answer. And even when you have you know, all knowledge, it's still unclear what mm -hmm. it is. And so it strikes me that private equity demystified as a title is peculiarly appropriate. And obviously it's uh, very much needed as well. So it's been uh, a great pleasure speaking with you both. And uh, I really commend the book. It's, uh, it, it's actually a good read as well. Thank you. I can also say that everybody who buys it, I don't make any money out of it. We give all the money to the big issue where I'm a trustee of the charity. So if people want to give money to charity and also learn about, about private equity, as I said in the post on LinkedIn, it's not Band-Aid, but it does a bit. David, John, thanks so much for sparing your time. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.